are listening to Bicycle Retail Radio, brought to you by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. Before we begin with the podcast, the NBA would like to offer a sincere note of thanks to association member Bike Flights for their continued support of the NBA and retailers at large. Bikeflights.com is a bicycle shipping service and a supplier of bike shipping boxes offering low costs, excellent service, and on-time delivery. Since 2009, Bike Flights has made it easy for more than a million people, including individuals, bike shops, events, and cycling industry businesses, to ship bikes, wheels, and gear with confidence. They've been working to get more people on bikes, plus have been advocating for safer roads and more and better trails to ride, race, and explore. Bike Flights is a company that's committed to sustainability. Learn more at bikeflights.com. Welcome to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio, produced by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. This is MBDA President Heather Mason. Specialty bicycle retailers are the heart of the cycling industry, and since 1946, the NBDA has existed to strengthen these businesses through education, research, communication, and advocacy. We truly believe when we create thriving bicycle retailers, the industry and the cycling community follows. Our focus is on creating activities and programming to enhance your business, adding to your long-term profitability and success. We wish to see the entire bicycle industry continue to thrive and all within find a genuine work-life balance, lasting friendships, and the comfort in a truly connected industry. The NBDA is a nonprofit supported by the membership of participating retailers and industry partners. If you are not already a member, you can learn more and join online at mbda.com. All right, I'm really excited about today's guest. One of the feedback that we get most often from our listeners is when we bring another bicycle retailer on. There's a lot of insight and there's a lot of relatability. So today's guest is Matthew Laprade, owner at AE Service Course in Folsom, California. I first met Matt on a call, I don't know, about a couple months ago, and I was like, you got to come on the podcast. And he was like, certainly, I'd be happy to do that. So aside from being on two wheels since he was three years old, Matthew has two decades of experience in the bicycle industry, from mopping floors and breaking down cardboard to being contacted by top bicycle companies such as SRAM to provide technical services. Throughout this time, Matthew has developed a wealth of knowledge and skill, and he is happy to share, especially over Espresso. He has a mutual love of Espresso. His skills and knowledge span all disciplines of bicycle with a heavy emphasis on road bikes which he spends most of his professional time and personal time riding. So listen in and learn more about his store, his thoughts on the changing industry and service center forward. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for coming on Bicycle Retail Radio. How are you? Oh, it's great to be here. Enjoying my air conditioner on a day when it's supposed to be, I think, 103 out. So. Oh, my God. I've seen some of the news about just the heat wave across the U.S. and people suffering. So in this area, we're kind of used to it. I would say this year we got spoiled. I mean, it rained twice this month. That never happens. I remember when I first moved to the Sacramento area, it was over 105 for like 12 days in a row. It was pretty rough. (laughs) So you're in California. So have you been riding a lot this year? Getting time out on the bike? No. No, unfortunately, a 15-month-old at home and a one-man shop getting in time for what I call product testing 
is very limited. <laughs> it's so true that we do have to test the product. <laughs> All right. So we have so much knowledge. You've been in the industry for so long. I did a little search online about you, see some of your past experience. I want to get to know you a little bit more before we dive into the store. So how did you find cycling? Like who introduced you to the sport? And just give us a little bit on your background. <clears throat> so the interest in actually road cycling and kind of the focus of what I have now didn't come until probably halfway through my professional career. Their initial interest in bikes was probably because of Dave Mira and I was hooked on and throughout high school and until I completely destroyed my knee in my early twenties was an avid BMXer just at the every waking moment at the skate park, rode my bike to school every day, even throughout high school, didn't even get my license till I was almost 19 just because I rode my bike everywhere. So it didn't matter. That's so cool. That's so awesome. <laughs> I love yeah. that. So when you were in high school, going into college or, you know, trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, how did you end up in a store? Cause I, I know your past experience involves starting in a store, correct? Yeah. So it's kind of funny. I got hooked into riding BMX. I've never been a small guy, even when I was in high school. So when you jump up and down on bikes, you break them all the time. And I went through one host of parts and my parents were like, yeah, we're done paying for this. You need to go get a job. So I figured that the only thing that made sense was a bike shop. One of the local shops just happened to be relocating at the time. So me and another riding friend just showed up and started breaking down boxes and just helping out like every day. And the owner frustratingly pulled us aside and said, all right, what do you guys want? <laughs> do you want parts? Like, what are you doing? I can't just like, I can't give you nothing. It's like illegal. <laughs> And he asked, like, do you want parts? And we like shook our heads. And he's like, do you want like cash? And we like shook our heads. And then he rolled his eyes and he's like, oh man, you guys want jobs, don't you? And we both nodded our heads and uh, we both got hired. This was in like, I think like 2001. And my riding buddy lasted like six months and I was there for about seven years. So thinking back now, were there some people who took you under their wing and started to really teach you the mechanics and how to, you know, work in the service shop along the way? Well, the owner of the shop, it was real bicycles. Unfortunately, the reason I left the shop is they went under in 2007, the real estate bubble popping in the Bay area popped really hard. So there was a lot of people who didn't have a lot of money to spend anymore. And he was always extremely mechanically focused. I mean, he believed the backbone of the store even somewhat of an intangible was having like the best shop because at the end of the day, that's what's always going to bring you the customers and the reputation. So he was in the early two thousands going out and purchasing, you know, like disc brake tab facing tools. And we were buying tools from Fox to overhaul forks that they're like, no shops ever called us to buy this before. So we'll see what it costs and like make you a part. And so that was kind of the influence that I had from the get-go was kind of like, you know, everything came after like mechanical perfection. Yeah. And then after that, when that went under, I kind of like, you know, did some other odd jobs, tried some other things because I'd been in the bike industry for so long. I went to school to be a car mechanic and not too dissimilar to the bike industry. Right. When I got out from that one was when the automotive industry tanked and I was actually making more significantly more at a bicycle shop than I could find getting as an entry level car tech. Wow. So you know, did some other odd things, used my size, you know, sold gym memberships, was a bouncer for a long time, and then found myself in a pickle where I needed some reliability in my life and 
like health insurance and things. So jumped back in 2010, back to a bike shop. I think a NBDA P2 member, Chris Padovana, Eden Bicycles. Yeah, he's um, awesome. <laughs> at probably one of the lowest points of my life, walked in there and asked for a job and he hired me. And then in that shop, he kind of inspired my love for road cycling. I mean, Chris was like an ex cat one, really promising road racer and kind of showed me the fun in it. I didn't know that, Matt. I had no idea Chris was a road cyclist. Now I got to No, he's very humble. I mean, he used to race back in the day and right before I left, he was kind of getting back into it and hadn't raced in, I don't know, decades. And I think one of his first races goes to do the local Giro de San Francisco, which was not an easy crit. I mean, in San Francisco, they shoot you up a pretty steep hill. He downed a couple categories, but the race he went out to, he podiumed. So yeah, he's still got a little kick to him, but it seems these days he gets his kicks doing some uh, fun overlanding adventures with his family. So Matt, I'm just thinking back. It sounds like you worked for two really dynamite humans, you know, like two entrepreneurs who totally got it. They got what elevated service was. They got what, you know, just taking things to the next level. Do you still talk to the first gentleman that owned the store that you worked for? Because absolutely. Yeah. They're actually, before I started a service course, I was at another juxtaposition in life, shall we say, and used a little bit of downtime I had and actually drove out and talked to all the people who I worked for that I respected and kind of talk to them like, I'm freaking out. What do I do? <sighs> and one of them put into my head, you could just open your own shop, dude. It's not that big of a deal. And this was someone I worked for that kind of honed the high-end road bike skills. It was a shop called Valoro in Redwood City, California, where the bikes I worked on in the world tour weren't as nice as the bikes I worked on at this shop. I mean, in the center of Silicon Valley, just insanely high-end bike after insanely high-end bike. So in learning more of the customer service and the aspect of working with that kind of clientele and what it can support you, he was the one who really reinforced like, dude, you could totally with your reputation, do it and open up a shop and then, you know, take that information, pound out a business plan, go talk to like Chris Padovana and the other guy who I used to work for about it, who all reinforced the idea. And I think it was yeah, July of 2021 was when I wrote the business plan and like, you know, legal zoom started the LLC and then opened my doors in the beginning of September. So we're like just coming up on a year that Matt. Yeah, no, it all happened super fast with, I think, uh, bootstrapping is a, a funny term. I say I bootstrapped it with holes in my boots, but we're still hanging on. I'm just trying to think about, I'm trying to picture, you know, you're at this spot in your life where you're, I think you said turmoil, or I don't remember what the exact word was, but you're going back to people that you worked for and you're just talking to them. And someone's like, you know, you could open a store. I mean, what'd you think? Were you like, did you always want to do that in the back of your heart? Or was this like, No, I never wanted to do it. <laughs> I always said, if anybody ever asked me in the shop, they're like, you know, customers would pull me aside. Reps would pull me aside and be like, so when are you going to do your own thing? I'm like, I like cashing checks, not writing them. Like, <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of respect for all the people I've worked for. And I see like the amount of stress that the position can bring, especially when you're responsible for paying the livelihood of, you know, anywhere from four to like 10 other people. 
you know, there's a, a weight that comes along with that that can't always be communicated, I think, until you experience it yourself. So, which is part of the reason I don't have any employees. So, <laughs> so uh, walk me through the process of starting the store then. So let our customer or our, our customers, our listeners know where the shop is located. It's in Folsom, California, but tell us a little bit about the space and just walk me through how that all happened. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, just previous to it, I was the general manager of Roseville Cyclery, which got purchased by Mike's Bikes, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. And great shop run by great people, but this is, you know, we're talking early 2021. COVID had really changed the way doing business in a bicycle shop was. Purchasing was so different, you know, it's super deflating to always see everything's out of stock. You have people coming in saying, hey, Matt, you know, my uh, stock dividends are doing good. Let's build like a super custom S-Works tarmac. And I'm like, mm, I can't. I don't know when I'll get anything. I can't. So it was really kind of like deflating the fun side of the business. And as if COVID wasn't stressful enough, me and my wife decided to have a kid. So <laughs> that in itself brought on a whole host of other issues and, you know, madness of what a first kid can bring upon. And so in that, I had a little bit of like mental health struggle and decided to take my paternity leave. And then this all happened during that paternity leave. Going into the paternity leave, I just had no idea what I was going to do. I had gotten to a point where, you know, I had gone from being a, <laughs> a stellar, awesome employee to being someone who was probably like a little more toxic and better to not be there. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't in my head find a way that I could make things better. And it was really causing a lot of stress, especially being a new father. So I took the time I had, I took the, you know, some of the freedom, the paternity funds provided me. Thank you, state of California, for giving me some of my tax money back. <laughs> yeah. Going and basically just trying to lean on all these mentors. Cause I've also known like some of the other struggles they've gone through outside of business that coincided with struggles in business. And know that they were people who would navigate it and know that they were people who weren't going to like, you know, sugarcoat anything. So yeah, after I had the one idea, I kind of, you know, written it out to do like a mobile idea and realized that I don't really see a way that people, how they make that work on the big end for the grandiose scheme. I mean, maybe if you're just trying to support yourself, but my goal is to, my wife doesn't have to work as much and can be at home with my kid. And who I never would have thought that owning my own 1,500 square foot shop upfront cost would actually be tremendously less than the needs that you need for mobile to get an account, to require to have a vehicle that you can outfit and completely overhaul a bike in. And then the limiting factor of I can be servicing a bike here while my ultrasonic machine is cleaning a drivetrain while three customers are bringing in bikes at the same time. There's no way I could do that on the road. So once that kind of got retooled for me and I kind of started doing the research into what it took to do a shop, things kind of just steamrolled from there. And not only, you know, going out and talking and having lunch with what I would call like my mentors or, uh, you know, (laughs) some of them angel investors, but also reaching out to other people who had kind of gone through the same thing. Someone who actually, I don't think we've ever physically met in person but our careers have somewhat gone similar. A gentleman named Peter James Lucas, who owns Marin Service Course in Fairfax, California, and imparting some certain things on me about the space that, you know, 
you know, spend the money on the location has done tremendously well, but in the first two years, he had to move his shop and said that was difficult because he didn't do it right for the first time. So he said, he knows it's super scary because it's the biggest bill any shop owner going into it is going to take on. I mean, signing that lease and seeing that massive monthly payment, especially here in Northern California, dollars per square foot are many. So having the the confidence of someone telling you like, yeah, you know, I know it's a big number, but trust me in six to seven months, you'll put it on an auto pay and it won't be a big deal. So imparting that how important the location is, I'm half a mile from the freeway. I'm a hundred yards from the beautiful American river bike trail that runs here from Folsom all the way down to Sacramento and back. So you can do 60 miles out and back on the bike trail along the American river. It's just lovely next to a lovely coffee shop, kingdom <laughs> coffee that roasts their own beans. So, and across the street from a Tesla supercharger. So my customers coming from the Bay area on their way to South Lake Tahoe can take a little charge while I uh, do some work on their bike. Matt, there's just so much there. First, I just want to thank you for being so honest and open. You know, this past couple of years for humans and almost every bicycle retailer I talk to, we're having hard, like really hard. And to share kind of your openly your struggles, you know, after having a new child and making such a radical change, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. And it's not easy to be that open. So thanks for doing that. I'm just so thankful for our industry, you know, people helping each other. It sounds like your network is pretty great and leaning on these retailers, your mentors, your friends to help you set up your own business and your own future. How awesome that we have that, right? I mean, how great. Yeah, I mean, I like even the other local shops, ones that I worked at, you know, ones right up the street. One of the things I've always loved about the bike industry is at least my experience here in Northern California, you know, it's not an expensive place to live and the bike industry isn't known as an industry affording a tremendous lifestyle. So I think a lot of people feel really lucky that they can do this for a living, provide themselves a decent living and get to live in such an incredible place. I mean, I remember working at that high-end shop in Redwood City and two other shops in the area, high-end shops got broken into where they were targeting ceramic speed bearings, things that somebody knew what they were. And individually, those shop owners called the shop to warn us and tell us what they were looking out for. And I mean, the sense of community to where you would think these are people you're quote unquote in competition with. You sell similar brands. You're a small shop that depends on every sale, but you're still recommending stuff back and forth. Because I mean, also at the end of the day, the best customer service advice I could give people ever is just the insanely honest. I mean, honesty is always going to win people over time and time again. Okay, Matt. So the name of your business is AE Service Course. So are you repairing and servicing bicycles? Are you selling complete bikes too? Can you give us a little bit of what your business model is? Yeah. So the business model, I mean, it does heavily lean on service. That is like the main focus, but I do work with a few select brands To sell bikes, I mean, that's a tough thing, especially when you're trying to build custom bikes and you just opened a shop that you can't place big back orders with. My struggle has been, you know, getting my hands on the product. You know, I have stuff that'll be landing and putting in the shop. Part of the way I approach my business and kind of hoping things go back to a little semblance of normalcy is I feel that the traditional bike model, especially on the high end of things, 
is a little bit broken and hurried. You know, for example, I mean, poke fun at specialized, right? Everyone likes to, but <laughs> S-Works Tarmax, almost a $15,000 bike. And I honestly think someone spending that much on a bicycle has done a little bit of a disservice to just go pull one off the rack. I mean, if you're a Ferrari customer ordering your top end Ferrari, they sit you down in a room and you pick out the stitching and there's a whole other level that goes of the experience of buying that halo level product. That's not just, here's the product, here's the money, see you later. Mm -hmm. And so that's a service that I've found a lot of people respond well to having something also that's a little more unique, but again, in the times where the supply chains is fractured as it is, and you need to, I just got in some Victoria tires that I ordered last August. That's a little bit long of a timeline to keep people excited. But when the inventory gets back to where maybe it's closer to that just-in-time model, the sales of bikes and things will start to pick up. So the idea is that you said you have a 1,500 square foot location. So the idea would be that a customer can come in and maybe sit down with you in a pleasant environment and build up their dream bike in an ideal world when inventory exists. and whatnot. Yeah. You know, I work with a local bike fitter, Bruce Hendler of Athletic Camps. So he has a tremendous amount of experience helping people, all things, fitting and coaching on bikes, because that's another part of the process, I think, that gets missed out on, on a lot of people buying that really high-end stuff is someone who should be removed from the sales part of it to be able to look someone in the eye and tell them if a bike actually fits them or not. I see so many bikes out there on the trail and Needless to say, you can obviously tell do not fit the customer, at least the way the engineer designed the person to fit on the bike to where you're making such altercations to the rider geometry that the bike's not going to handle how it was supposed to and how they were being sold is how it should. So I think pulling that part out of the shop and being a little more honest about it will end up navigating the customer at the end of the day to a product that's going to provide them a better experience which I think is what we're all after at the end of the day. So can we rewind for a second, Matt? Because I want to know just about how you found your space. Because you were saying it was, you went with a little bit more expensive space, but it's ideally located. Like how did that process go? And Many sleepless nights trolling like commercial red fins and things like that. Honestly, it's a total stroke of luck. I had looked at a couple places, you know, just trying to keep the bill down, trying to keep the square footage down. In honesty, I didn't really want a place this big to start out with, but I went to certain places and I also didn't really have a ton of funds to put into any kind of renovations. I mean, to be completely frank, I started this business with under 20,000 bucks, wow. so it wasn't easy. But after getting that advice from Peter, you know, I kind of opened up my scope as to what I would accept as far as dollars per square foot and size. And this location popped up and honestly was a godsend. It was a little more expensive from the get-go, but it had been abandoned by, you can guess by the lighting, T-Mobile, which I've been a customer of since 2003, 2002. So a fan of the brand. And also tend to put a lot of pink accents on my bike from time to time. So not afraid of the color and matches my uh, Nielsen Palace jersey hanging on the wall. So for listeners who obviously you can't see Matt, but I'm looking at him and he's got like this neon pink stripe behind his head. I don't know what it is. If you've been in any T-Mobile retailer, you can, <laughs> you can understand what it looks like. But the other real benefit of that was 
they left a insane amount of like merchandising and flat wall. And I mean, the build out of my shop, including like standing compressor was like 2,500 bucks. So it was, you know, yeah, I'm spending a little bit more on the rent, but the location, the proximity and the security measures and things, it came with like $50,000 worth of stuff. So it was uh, well worth kind of broadening my scope of what to look for. And I think I 100% just lucked out on the location. So you get into the location, you open up the store, and then over the first couple of days, like, how did people find you? Did you market? Like, Oh, man. First couple weeks or month was just, I was glad I put a little cheap futon on my couch because I laid on it a lot because I was riddled with anxiety with nothing to do. The fun thing is when you open a business and people don't quite know about you yet, and you put yourself on Google, you get phone calls all day, but none of them are for business. It's just people because you have a Google listing. So that got really deflating and depressing for a while. But fortunately, I'd been in the area up here since 2017. I opened the shop in September of 2021. So in that time, I'd been able to make a little bit of a name for myself. And honestly, the only piece of marketing that I did was using my Strava premium account. I changed my Strava name to the name of the business. I changed my avatar logo to the logo of the business. And every day I would just sit there and add people and it would be a little more focused. Strava would make it pretty easy for me as to who to target. If they were a premium member, they're probably using a power meter or a heart rate meter, which is the benefit of those premium functions. So they're probably going to be more likely to be interested in my services. Strava also tells you where they're located. So I could just sit there and add people and who they ride with. And okay, just go and add those. And after that, I've got actually a surprising amount of people saying like, oh yeah, you added me on Strava. So I thought I'd check you out. And part of me wants to call you a Strava stalker. And part of me wants to congratulate you for being so smart. Oh no, I did exactly what Strava didn't want people to do. You know, I'd go out and ride specifically. And then I'd go and do all my flybys. and like, who'd I fly by? Because I'm also not a small individual. So if people flew by me on the bike trail, they probably recognized it because there's not usually people that big on a bike. So yeah, I mean, that was pretty much the focus and then just built word of mouth from there. Okay. Walk me through this. So Matt, you have just friended me on Strava. I come into the shop and you know, how do I know that you have all this experience and you can help me with my high-end $20,000 road bike. So do you have your certifications posted in the store? What am I being greeted with when I walk in to know that this is a premium place where I'm going to get top level service? Well, I mean, in the beginning, you could tell just because there's a limited amount of accessories, but the accessories are focused at that higher end experience. You know, I carry tires, but they're only race tires. I don't have you know, anything other than like Victoria Corsa and Veloflex Corsa tires in stock. You know, there's a suite of ceramic speed products in stock. So it is kind of focused towards someone who would know what those things are. And I mean, although I'll service just about any bike that walks through the door, it kind of sets the tone for what the customer is going to be getting when they walk in. Also compared to a lot of places in the area, you know, the my work stop is <laughs> for better or worse, completely exposed. I'm not always the most clean up kept person. But, you know, when there's tools and stuff out, you can see that I have a full snap-on toolbox from my mechanic days and all Gucci high-end tools that kind of show off somebody cares and is using some nice products on the bike. And for a mechanic, I tend to be quite eloquent, so I can usually 
explain my way into making people feel very comfortable leaning their bikes very quickly. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the retailers who are listening. You know, we, we continually talk about elevating the service center and you know servicing all types of bikes and taking the customer journey to the next level. So that's why I was wondering for retailers who have been like stuck in working on a certain you know maybe level of like how do they get to this more premium high end road customer? And I love your Strava. That is like really ingenious. Are you still doing that to this day, Matt? Yeah, every day. I mean, I do it. I'm on Strava more adding people than I am riding and analyzing my own rides because those don't happen very often. But, but yeah, and I think the thing with, you know, getting to work with more of the high end stuff is I was very fortunate that, you know, being in the Bay Area, there's the shops that don't focus on it, have the client or two that are buying the 10 to plus thousand dollar bike a year. I got fortunate enough. The first couple people I worked for, I mean, actively were racing or riding and they had high end kit always on their bike. So I was at least getting to see it and touch it. Yeah. I mean, just kind of giving yourself the opportunity or taking it whenever it is in dealing with the customers. I think one of the most important things is I think it's like they say about how to compose yourself when you win something. There's the old adage, uh, when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before. Have you heard of P2 groups and wondered what they are? P2 stands for the Profitability Project. And while profitability is at the focus of everything we do, we do so much more. P2 group members share their expertise and their insights. They ask questions and they exchange resources to make sure every member is profitable and successful in every aspect of bike shop ownership. Reach out today so we can tell you more. I've had a number of customers communicate to me the worst feeling they can get is going into a shop they've never been in with their really fancy bike and the whole staff is completely blown away like they've never seen it before and then they're like I don't want these guys to touch my bike because they've never seen something like this before so the chance yeah so act like you've been there before and then just you know be honest I mean I still get stuff that comes across my stand that I haven't seen before and I'm be frankly honest with the customer but you know hey we'll call the company we'll work it out if i can do it i can do it if i can i can't and again i mean it leans back on the sales thing of just being completely honest is i think you know being really important because also when you're honest with the customer you're less likely to put yourself in a pickle where you're going to get stressed and something's probably going to go wrong yeah the worst is like not right and then you get into something and you're like uh-oh uh-oh oh yeah and hey it happens you know i can do oh i got this you'll be ready by tomorrow and then you open up and it's a different size absolutely you thought and you're like oh i don't have the right tools for this at all so do you <laughs> be the you know mechanic that thinks he can get away with hitting stuff with hammers and probably make a mistake or do you just fall on your sword call the customer and say hey i know it's going to go like this I can clean it up on the outside a little bit, but we're going to have to reset until I can get the right tools. And I think that's another big thing that it that happens with being professional or not. It's just being able to say that, you know, that fall on the sword, like, hey, I don't have it yet. I will. If that's a problem, maybe I can find someone who can for you. If it's not a problem, let me call you when I got the right stuff and we'll do it then. So you're coming up on a year. So business is going good and you're still expanding and it's just you, correct, Matt, right now? Yeah, we're, it's getting there product is slowly starting to become more available. I have like, you know, to keep my customers stoked and to keep things going, even when people can't get stuff, but to make so, so I can get the build, you know, I'll buy custom, buy parts from performance or 
Merlin cycles for my customers and, you know, kind of pass through the costs to keep them going. So yeah, I'm not to where I want to be yet, but when I look back at my business plan, I'm where I should be or a little ahead considering the resources that are available to me. You know, I planned on having a suite of, you know, demo wheels to be able to sell off of and things. And and that brand hasn't even been able to get me a tire yet. So (laughs) never mind a a few wheels and yeah, you got to, got to have stuff to be able to sell it. So that's the the main key. But fortunately, washing bikes and lubing chains can keep the lights on for now. So yeah, I mean, there's so much here I want to talk to you about, like in general on the industry, but just sticking with the service department um, in your business a little bit longer here. Many retailers, the conversations as of late have been around service center pricing and labor rates. So when you were setting up your business, is there a guide that you used in determining what your prices were going to be? Or how did you go about that? I knew what I wanted them to be, but I also didn't want to take my business as kind of an off-the-cuff thing. And I wanted to kind of, you know, prove my costs. And I knew there were resources out there. And I used the Barnett Institute's flat rate chart. You can just go purchase from their website. It's a nice Excel spreadsheet where you just, you know, type in your related overhead, your tool expenditure, your average like lube consumption a month, you know, what your cost is per square footage, what you want your profit to be. And it'll, you know, output your essential wholesale price for labor. And so I kind of use that to justify my costs, but that's where it sits. And I do kind of think the industry as a whole does need to take a really strong look at the labor costs. And I think we're grossly underselling ourselves for a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a conversation that we're having often with retailers. And there are a lot of uh, retailers who have been raising prices recently and really focusing on getting really specific about those numbers. And what a great, fantastic tool you referred to there. You went to auto mechanic school, you said? Is that what you said, Matt? Yes. Yeah. I went to WyoTech in Fremont, California, like an 18 month program. Yeah. That was pretty interesting in some ways kind of told me that if I was going to get in the automotive industry, it'd have to be something pretty fun and high performance because I had a couple of cool teachers there, but for the majority, that school was a mechanics graveyard. Mm-hmm. And you just see all these guys through the industry had broken their backs and their their hands being in chemicals had this one teacher had, they're like, doctors can't tell me what's wrong with my hands, but I can't go to work anymore because I've been having them in automatic transmission fluid for 20 years. And it looked like a pretty rough gig and with the upfront costs for automotive mechanic, you know, you have to buy your own tools and you're probably looking at anywhere between 60 to 80,000 in the first like year or two of tool expenditure. That wasn't something I was as interested in, <laughs> especially when the only job I could find was paying like 14 bucks an hour. So, so retailers are most often asking as of late, how can we find mechanics? How can we bring more mechanics on? So did you learn through the past jobs that you had then at retailers and you were trained by past mechanics at other locations or, you know, any thoughts on how do we bring mechanics up in the store ourselves or? So it can be, but I think it's just the problem is finding the right type of individual because it's, something where there has to be a little bit of like, you know, education and theory done, but there's also just, unfortunately, a lot of 
experience. The products aren't manufactured to such a high standard that everything works every time you do it the way the manual says. Mm. Back when I did have, and I was more of a service manager and had younger guys working under me, kind of the, you know, be a little old school about stuff like don't know how to sweep a floor. You don't know how to change a tube. <laughs> so start on simple things like that, where you can kind of analyze attention to detail, how thorough someone's going to be, how they're going to approach a task they don't want to do because there's everybody has to work on bikes they don't want to work on. So that's kind of a good, you can kind of vet somebody that way and see if that's what they're cut out to do. And then if so, I would actually have the junior mechanic read the Zen art of bicycle maintenance, read this back and forth like two or three times. And then we'll start talking about building a kid's bike out of the box and basic things like that. And then just kind of work them up, make sure they're doing most of the working on their own bike. I'm not going to say it helps. I'm almost going to say it's mandatory that they ride and they're passionate about riding because if not, I don't think they would ever stick with it. So um, that would be kind of crucial as well. What a great book to reference. I forgot about that book, but it is great. And yeah, the kids bikes build. When I first started in a shop, I think for like three weeks, I was just on building kids bikes and I did like 15 a day and like lined them up and they had to be inspected. And it was like, it was bone crushing, but it taught me so much, you know, so that's a great, fantastic. Oh, I mean, there was rainy days in the shop where, you know, the first shop I worked at had in their inception acquired an older shop. So there's plenty of just ancient inventory that was never going to sell. And part of that was a, a wall hanging of like 20 inch coaster brake wheels. And, you know, one rainy day in the shop, you just like nothing to do. Why don't you rebuild every hub up there? Mm. So, and that's the other thing, you know, just keeping busy and approaching different things because you never know when one tech's going to bleed onto another and one experience is going to benefit another. So you got to play with a little bit of everything and also do the unfun stuff. Unfun stuff. Yeah. So, all right. You see that retail is changing, right? You got the specialized shops, the truck shops, the, you mentioned Mike's bikes, pond. I mean, the consolidation, there's a lot of it in Northern California. How are you looking at that? How's that look from where you're sitting? It's really interesting. And I'm kind of happy to be a fly on the wall in a sense. I mean, I have my own struggles, but it's nice not to be stuck in maybe being comfortable with one way of doing things and having to completely change that overnight. I think the best analogy I've come up with in my head is I think at one point, I haven't necessarily done the, the history on it, but I'm sure at one point, you know, every community had their own grocery store and, you know, that's where you could go for, and you knew the people that worked there and they carried, you know, maybe not every product, but they carried the ones that you liked, you know, because you were the, the folks that went there and they had their hiccups, but everybody, you know, it's like cheers into your name. And eventually those turned into Safeway and Rayleigh's and mm-hmm. maybe they weren't as personable, but the service was consistent and you could get what you needed and go. And although maybe that, you know, wholesome grocery store experience was gone, what spawned from that were specialty butchers and all these other little like specialty shops, because now they didn't have to compete with some over encompassing thing and they could sit out there. So I think you'll see, I mean, here alone in Folsom, it's a very bike centric town for Northern California. I mean, when it was still around, it was a multiple time host city for the tour California stages again with the bike trail running through it. So there's a number of bike shops in town and you're seeing specificity like e-bike shops 
pop mm-hmm. up because there's needs that those clients have that general shops don't always cover and vice versa. There's, you know, like my shop that kind of caters to the mid to high end enthusiast of people who are, you know, most of my clients ride 10 plus hours a week. So they're out there just beating the crap out of their stuff and they ride hard and put it away wet and the stuff needs to work all the time. You got a guy up in Auburn that just runs, all he does is suspension and even other shops lean on him in the area. You got fitters and stuff like that. I'm kind of seeing where, you know, these businesses are fragmenting out. They're able to be very successful in their own right because in the general sense, the regular bike shop is mainly for its own sense, has to focus on profitability, especially if you're owned by some bigger corporation. And the thing that makes the most profit is just selling bikes and just selling bikes. I mean, when I was the general manager of a shop in COVID, we were selling so many bikes that we had to make the decision in one month. I said, Hey, you know what? We're not doing service this month. If somebody bought a bike from us, like with the follow-up services and stuff like that, but there's no tune-ups, there's none of that. We're cutting that off for like an entire month. And it was the most profitable month the shop ever had. Because if you are that backed up and can sell that many bikes, I mean, hey, do you spend 90 minutes building a Santa Cruz that nets the shop 1500 bucks, Or do you tune up something that's going to make you 200 bucks in labor and maybe a few in parts or maybe a bolt strips and you got to put some more time into it and can go awry. So I think that's where you're going to see the separation. There'll be more like service centers and focus boutiques that focus on like the mountain experience, the E experience, you know, the gravel and road experience, what have you. And then you'll have your generic stores where you can just kind of get everything from the the big brands. That's an optimistic way of looking at it. And I feel like I tend to agree, definitely see those specialty shops popping up and a bunch of conversations around the specialized specific stores and Trek specific stores. But I think it gives a unique opportunity for the IBD. You have to stay optimistic about it and think about what you do. I love your analogy to the grocery store because I have a local store that, yeah, you go in and they stock stuff that local people love and you know their name and they know my name and it's easy and it feels good. And it's, I don't know, it's less stressful and I enjoy going in there. So I feel like that when I go to the local bicycle store too, it's just like, I actually just want to go in and hang out for a little bit. Like, do you have a space in your store that people can just chill and spend time in or is it more? Um, A little bit. I got a few chairs of what I could fit into my little shop build out budget. And then me being a rather large individual, I've broken half of them eating lunch. So that needs to grow a little bit, but there's a nice coffee shop at the lounge next door. So that helps. That's awesome. So listen, I was on your website and I noticed, um, and I'll put the link in the show notes for our listeners, but I noticed that you do online service scheduling and I've had some, re- you know, that's been a conversation. Some of our peer to peer groups, you know, the online service scheduling, if people fill that out when the bike gets there and it needs something more than the person noted in the online, like just thoughts around how online service scheduling is working and any pro tips that you would recommend to retailers? Yeah, the main thing I think with online service scheduling is just especially when it's a relative unknown, you know, you haven't seen the customer, you haven't seen the bike, is keeping the expectations low, right? I mean, any kind of service is all about setting expectations. You know, I think the people that do it the best that we forget about are doctors, right? How many times do you hear about the person? Oh, he was never going to walk again. And oh, man, he made this miraculous recovery. It's like, yeah, they can't tell you that you're going to walk again and then you not. So they are the kings 
and queens of under promise over deliver, which is the name of the game. So that's, a, huge, that's a dramatic reference. That was a, that was dramatic, but I like yeah, it. I like but it. I mean, that's what they're doing because they have to, they have malpractice insurance and all this stuff. They can't tell you what's not going to happen. They have to be extremely frank and pretty much present with you. This is, you know, worst case scenario is probably what it's going to be. And then when you have, you know, any kind of incremental benefit, it looks great. Yeah. So, I mean, now you don't want to sell your services and stuff as everything like that, but it's good to take inspiration from that and be frank. Like, Hey, I haven't seen this bike before. I don't know what we're dealing at. The best I can tell you is I usually set up my appointments. They're more for an evaluation, not a service. Mm-hmm. So it's like, Hey, I'll be able to maybe take a quick look on the stand when you drop it off or if anything, evaluate it and have like a prescribed diagnosis and how to move forward within the next 24 hours. And here's a cost and time frame. And it's either going to work or it doesn't. And hey, we go from there. Yeah. I mean, thinking about that, and that's another one that comes up. I've got you in the hot seat, Matt. So I'm going to keep you here for a second. Bring um, it on. You know, the question, do the service write up when the bike comes in for intake in front of the customer? Do we do it on the spot? That's one part of the question. And then two, any pro tips, like how are we getting everything in there? Are we leaving room like, Give me the okay if it costs more. Just thoughts about how we're doing that service intake. So I think that's why, especially these days when it comes down to, I mean, my shop, I keep a very limited inventory of everything, even service parts, because those are hard to get. So I get that 24-hour buffer so I can sit down and research and have an idea of, okay, well, if we move forward, you know, I usually try to give like a two options. Let's say someone makes like, Customers completely uneducated, they come in and say, oh, my bike's not running good. I need a tune-up. And I say, well, that's hard to say because there's so much difference in bikes, but leave it with me and we check. And, and then I measure out the consumables and see where everything are at. And then maybe give them an option like, hey, do you want your bike to ride nicer than it did? Here's maybe some upgraded options and how long that would take. And here's like a regular replacement and how long that's going to take. And I do like to do that if possible away from the customer because it allows you more time to think when you're writing it and sometimes come up with better solutions and maybe not rush things. You know, maybe you're looking up, you're like, Oh, QPP doesn't have this, but I can, you know, I'll use a micro shift cassette instead of a, a SRAM one because QPP didn't have it. And then, you know, you, you write down the order and everything and, Oh, I forgot to check Holly. Maybe they had one. Mm-hmm. And as much as you can, I try to eliminate, I do a very poor job of it most of the time, but eliminate rushing or any time where you can be on the spot because being on the spot heightens the chance for mistakes and a chance for mistakes is going to not only waste your time and money, but it's going to fracture confidence with the customer, which is the last thing we want. So I know everybody likes things like next day, but I usually give it that window of that 24 hours. And I guess that's in the sense of like a tune-up, right? If somebody comes in and says, hey, my shifter's not working. Okay, yeah, put it on the stand. Make sure the shifter head hasn't frayed. Maybe take a quick look. But if something's like, you know, drivetrain wear, multiple parts, definitely slow the process down. So you can just do it right the first time, present them with something. And you're usually more likely to get acceptance and then, you know, respect their moving on forward. Yeah, my brain is thinking now of like, all right, I'm bringing my bike to you and I mean, I want it tuned up, but I don't just want it tuned up. I'm coming to you because I want you to be like, hey, you know, if you did this, it's probably going to ride smoother. You know, just thinking about those options to actually make the bike better. Mm-hmm. So, And that's why I think it's important for shops to, especially if they are going to 
lean more on the service things, they need to do a better job of communicating how their service is going to improve the experience other than your stuff's going to last longer and it's going to work how it should. Well, what's how it should? Maybe a lot of these bikes they got on the stand never really were adjusted. They had a bent hanger and electronic shifting absorbed the issue, but maybe it wandered a little bit in the cassette or it was a little bit rougher than it could be. And like, you know, something that I've used to set myself apart is I offer like chain waxing services. And it's something that definitely improves the experience for the customer. The drivetrain's lighter. It feels smoother. They don't get chain grease on their legs. It really thrives in our environment as far as making their stuff last longer. So finding those ways to promote that, like how your service actually can greatly improve their experience. You know, something as simple as, oh, you're feeling the front end of your bike is a little rougher. Like, you know, when we put on this handlebar tape, I tell you what, we're going to pull it tighter and make the straps further apart on the drops because you're not really there. So I have more tape and can wrap it tighter and overlay it. So it's thicker and it's going to feel more comfortable. Like, or even something as simple as when you're done with the service of tire pressure consultation. I mean, I use the, there's a number of available tire pressure calculators online, whether it be using the, the high number that you'll get from Silka or the lower number you'll get from Zipper Envy, but doing things like that where you're, you're showing concern for their experience, not just the bike, I think is also important as well. The tire pressure thing is huge. I mean, I'm like 130 pounds and I've been riding my road bike at like 120, like, so like my whole life, but I know it's probably should be like around 90 or something. Yeah, I'm no, keep going. I'm 278 pounds. I ride 28 mil tires. I'm running tubeless right now, although I don't think it's the best thing for everybody. I run 85 in the front and 90 in the rear. So (laughs) I think just a consultation, we probably all need. (laughs) And then, you know, yeah. And just simply being honest and, you know, I know the race tires that I carry are way more supple. They're easier to change. If you do get a flat, they have less rolling resistance. But if I have a customer that just, they're like, I just don't want to ever get a flat, then I'll be frank with them and say, yeah, you know, you're going to pay these penalties and ride quality, but hey, go get a continental gator skin and then we'll never have to change a flat. So I think that's the other thing also is not letting your ego and what you want so much get in the way of what the customer wants and needs. You know, you definitely want to use your experience and your opinion to maybe help present a selection, but let the customer to a certain extent be an individual. I think I'm so bad with names, but I was listening to one of the NBDA podcasts with the gentleman from RNA Cycles. And I think that was one of his imparting things, like just give the people what they want. Don't tell them that you can't, no, they can have whatever they want, you know, to a certain extent, you know, be frank of how it'll affect their experience. But I am not the king of cool. <laughs> just what I think is cool is not the only thing that's cool. It just is from where I'm sitting. And, you know, there's a lot of places to sit and look at bikes. So. I'm not the king of cool. I really like that. (laughs) It's true. Give the customer what they want. Any trends you're noticing? I mean, you're in California, you know, I'm East Coast, like anything that that you're seeing in the industry, bikes coming in, people asking for anything, e-bikes, e-roads. I mean, I mean, I was a little more in tune with this when I was the GM of a bigger shop. We got to the point where, especially on the mountain bike side of things, uh, I was one for one e-bike for mountain bike. Mm -hmm. So yeah, e-bikes are just taking over. Actually, let's go to another couple NBDA podcasts. 
I do fulfillment with Beeline and have an event in sitting in the shop that I have to assemble because also that was a really great benefit in the early days when I had no idea of what kind of income that I was going to have, if any, to be able to have this service that I can flick on a switch and these bikes show up. I put them together. They're relatively straightforward. They've been pretty much trouble-free. The trouble that I did have, the communication was relatively straightforward and, uh, you know, the way the companies acted still made me look good and they treated the customers I would have. So it was nice to be able to flick that switch and, you know, get an extra couple hundred bucks every month for putting some bikes together. Can I ask you a question with that? So I mm-hmm. like Neil Mack is awesome. Beeline Connect. And that was a fun podcast with Jessica from Eventon. Are some of those customers coming back to you for repeat services after you build their initial bike or? So not on the, I do have one conversion story, actually, for the most part, no, they, you know, they get the bikes and they go off. And for the most part, I'm not going to carry accessories or things that are going to benefit their experience, but I do educate them as to, you know, Hey, there's an e-bike focused store up the road, one exit here, you know, for general accessories and stuff, you know, go talk to this guy over there. I mean, I still make sure that I can be a point of reference for them for their experience, but, you know, make sure to let them know I'm not going to have a 26 by four inch tube in stock. <laughs> but yeah, the beeline and the event and thing has been nice. I mean, you know, when things are getting down and out, I mean, there's definitely been months where I paid the rent and then I'm like, oh, maybe I can't buy lunch now. <laughs> and to, to have like a little beeline payment show up for a couple of bikes that were relatively easy to put together is definitely nice. And the conversion story was, I think the third one I did, a guy comes in and when he picks it up, he sees that I had some guys like Trek speed concept with, you know, I was gluing up a zip tubular for him. And he's like, Oh, I was thinking about getting into triathlon. I'm like, okay, well, you know, if you're thinking about getting a bike, the first thing you need is a fit. And I handed him my fitters card and he went and talked to the fitter. And I, you know, this was September. So it was like, you know, the first month I opened the gentleman came back in April holding a Canyon TT bike. And he's like, Hey, I need a cork power meter, a Wahoo head unit and a trainer and then drops like 2,500 bucks. So yeah. you never know. I mean, I think the, the one thing, whoever's sales meeting I went to, whether it was with Specialized or Trek, one of the most invaluable things I think as a small business is getting customers into your store, especially because, I mean, I feel obviously that word of mouth is the most powerful form of advertising. And because, I mean, it's targeted. If they came into your store, they are going to be around other people who can come into your store. And you never know who's, my wife's a dental hygienist. And, you know, she'll bring it up and never have any idea that some of her clients who were cyclists. So you never know. And just, I think, putting yourself out there, and especially if you're not overwhelming yourself by doing it, there's no downside to new customers coming in your door. Totally. Really. Totally. So what's next, Matt? Like, all right, so we're almost a year in. Are we having a party? Or like, what's next for the shop? <laughs> I haven't even had a grand opening. When I got married, we still haven't gone on a honeymoon. I may be live in California, but I was born in New Jersey and I just, let's just get to work. Let's I mean, if my, if my wife let me, I would work through every holiday <laughs> and just, no, if there's, <laughs> I think it was the line I heard from Chris Padovano was the best where he's like, you know, what days are you open? He's like, mm, everyone, they charge me rent. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's a, that's a pretty good one. Cause yeah, they, uh, they never stopped that rent bill. So. Matt, have some of your mentors been in to see the shop and see what you put together? And do you still 
you know, talk with them and lean on them every once in a while? Oh, totally. I think Chris might actually be dropping by later today. (laughs) You know, the gentleman who owned the first shop I worked at, I mean, he kind of helped me get it started. And, you know, the other guy who owns the boutique, he's a... (laughs) I mean, he just hired another service guy finally, but I mean, he was a one-man operation in a 1,200-square-foot shop that, I mean, you walk in there and just like $20,000 bike after $20,000 bike laying on top of each other. So he was up to his ears in alligators, so he hasn't been able to make it out this way yet, but I'm sure he will now that he has an employee and get a little more caught up, maybe this winter. I'm coming out to see, we're having our, actually our P2 retailer meeting at Chris's shop in the spring. So I'll definitely pop in then. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 I want to, I need to go down and see Chris's new, expanded location. Yeah. Funny, funny story about that one was when I was working there, that location next to him has been vacant for a long time. Like it used to be a toy store or something like that. I mean, I worked for him from 2010 to 2013. And I think it was in like 2013, Ocean's Eleven style. Somebody broke into that building next door, but because there was nobody there, there was no alarm. And then someone broke in through the wall upstairs. Now, it's somewhat hilarious. I mean, it's always frustrating. It always feels like, you know, violating to have that happen. But where they broke in, they walked right past like a Colnago and Dogma frame ran down past a bunch of expensive bikes and grabbed the least valuable thing in a bike shop, which is the cash register. <laughs> and that's all they took other than just creating a lot of property damage. But Ocean's Eleven style. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was too funny. And now he broke down the wall and before shopping there. So it looks good. I can't wait to see it in person. Yeah. All right. There's so much here. And I mean, you've just been a super wealth of knowledge. We have people who are just trying to get into the industry, you know, want to open up stores, maybe trying to think about how to best position themselves in the changing environment. If listeners might have additional questions, wanted to reach out to you, would you share contact information? Absolutely. Usually the best way to get a hold of me is via my email, which is Matt, M-A-T-T, at A-E servicecourse.com. Another way would be via my Instagram account, which is just AE service course. Awesome. Or, or we could find you on Strava or you're going to find us soon. <laughs> yes. Yes. Although, you know, it's funny, you get to a certain point and then Strava only lets me add like two people a day. They're like, no, you're, to. <laughs> you're too creepy. You know what? They should talk to me. It can help them make some money. They could put it as a service to bike shops. As far as client advertising targetization, yes. Where are most premium members who are using power meter and heart rate data starting their rides from? Someone might be able to use that when they're opening a shop if they want to be along routes. You know, Strava heat map isn't a bad idea to take a look at. Yeah, you're going to have a ton of people reaching out to you. What? How did you do this? Tell me more. I can sense it. It's happening. Yeah, I talk a lot. So, Matt, thank you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been super fun. Oh my gosh. All right. So listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Bicycle Retail Radio. The podcast is designed specifically for the bicycle industry. As Matt mentioned, there's lots of great past episodes. If you haven't taken a listen through, go ahead and check out the past episodes. Some great guests there. The easiest way to support the show is subscribe and then share your favorite episode. This episode online with your friends so they can listen as well. You can also make my day and leave a review. I love it when it pops up. I share it with my kids. I share it with everyone. So go ahead, leave a review. Head over to the MBDA website, sign up for our free newsletter to stay up with our complete calendar of events. Special thanks to MBDA Development Director Rochelle Scouten for the editing and promotional graphics with today's episode. 
We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. Now go be great. This has been Bicycle Retail Radio by the National Bicycle Dealers Association. For more information on membership and member benefits, join us at nbda.com. Mm-hmm.